All right. Well, let's go ahead and take up our offering. And uh, if you would, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. Sounds like I'm getting old, doesn't it? <laughs> 11, Genesis 11. Recorders running, so Brother Lynn message the other night was was really good, and it got me thinking about some different things. And it's one of the things I wanted to uh, look at. It just seems like in our country today, there's just so much division. And uh, I'm going to go into more detail in that in my message. But uh, this morning, I just want to talk a little bit about unity. Uh, you know, world's political scene, uh, and this this is a lesson that was written back in the mid-70s that I took this off of, so some of the stuff's a little dated, but, you know, the United Nations seems to be the, the big thing for countries to all get together in, and then you've got the, uh, you know, as we study the book of Revelation and see those things, we see you know, the need for a one-world church, I mean, the one-world church, a one-world government, one-world money. So everything's kind of pushing towards a unity. But that's not the kind of unity that God advocates, that God wants. So I uh, just want to get back, go back to, like I said, uh, Genesis chapter 11, and uh, we'll just kind of run through this. Here in Genesis 9 1, uh, God commanded Noah and his sons to replenish the earth. Well, I mean, we all, we've all heard that and everything. But in Genesis 11, chapter 2, the Bible tells us that it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. Now, I don't think you can replenish the earth by st just ad by living in one place. I think you've got to spread it out. And 11.1, uh, it said the whole earth was one language and one speech. So again, there's something there that's basically, you know, you, gra you gravitate together. If you know that you go to an outing or whatever, you see even churches today, you have the, uh, you know, the English-speaking churches, the Spanish-speaking churches, the Korean-speaking churches, you know, and each church kind of ministers to those that speak that language. And at that time, back then, everybody had the same language. So it all stayed together. Well, then they got the bright idea that, well, hey, let's just see, you know, let's see we can reach God. So they decided to build a couple of things. They built a city and they built a tower. The city was to bring about political unity 
and the tower was an attempt to achieve religious unity. In, since, since that time, archaeologists have identified that Tower of Babel as a ziggurat, which is a tower used for pagan religious purposes. We see God's response to this in 11, chapter, uh, verses 5 through 8. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. So we see God's thought about that power of unity that that's not what he wanted. He doesn't, didn't want man to be unified that way. He didn't want he just, he just didn't want man to be in and of himself. God needs and God commands that man unity be with him not between each other not that we're not supposed to get along that's not the point at all it's just that when man's unity starts taking the place of God's leadership there's a major conflict in that when we see that, that was kind of where it started and then there's man's final attempt which is over in the book of Revelation, chapter 6 through 19. We're going to, we see that in Revelation chapter 13, verse 7, that the beast, the Antichrist, is going to exercise political power over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And that's what we mentioned just a little bit ago. According to Revelation 14.8, the center of this political unity is going to be called Babylon. And then in Revelation 17.1, the great one-world religious system of the last days is referred to as the great whore. Now, we identify this as a religious system because of Revelation 2 verses 20 through 22, and because the Lord's true churches are likened unto pure, chaste virgins by way of contrast. We see that in 2 Corinthians 11, 2, Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, and Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8. God's churches are his bride. But again, when you start going away from God and you start doing things, man starts doing things on his own, he gets away from that purity. He gets away from that chasteness and becomes impure and becomes not suitable for the bride of Christ. And that's what we see happening today 
if you start looking at churches and around the world, you you don't find a lot of churches. I mean, there. I don't want to go to the extreme that uh, the prophet did, and he said, "Well, I'm the only one here." I don't mean that at all. But the vast majority of churches do not teach the full counsel of God. They're out there teaching other things. There's, a, you know, we call it. I think a lot of times we've heard it called the social gospel, and uh, you know, the Bible talks about. Uh, people drawing to themselves teachers uh, having itching ears just tell them something they want to hear and we see a lot of the world following that type of Christian leadership let's don't offend anybody let's don't say anything that might keep somebody from coming to our church because we know it's all about getting the people in not about them hearing the truth, but about us being able to say, look at the size of our church, look at what we've got, and, uh, and that. And we kind of see that all working you know, towards that as, as time goes by. God identifies the one world church of the Antichrist as Mystery Babylon in, in Revelation 17.5. And then in 17, verse 1 and verse 15, the religious system sits upon peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. It truly is worldwide. And again, we see God's response to this type of thing in Revelation 18, verses 2 through 8. And after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon, the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird." For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. Reward her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her double according to her works, in the cup which she hath filled to her double. How much she hath glorified herself and lived deliciously, so much torment and sorrow give her, for she saith in her heart, I sit a queen, and am no widow, and shall see no sorrow. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judgeth her. So we see that God's not happy 
with a one-world system. Now let's turn our Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 4. This is a unity chapter and deals with true unity as opposed to the false unity that Satan proposes. We hear so much in religious circles today about the need for a spirit of unity. Ephesians 4.3, however, in marked contrast, tells us to keep the unity of the spirit endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Before we look at the rest of this, let's establish some Bible principles which relate to unity. The One World Church, uh, the World Council of Churches, the National Council of Churches, uh, local organizations in that want try to get everybody brought in together and preachers talked about it before when we stand when we have a cause that we agree on we can stand with someone but so many times there's a request for us to stand with someone that doesn't teach what we believe in Amos chapter 3 and verse 3 the Bible says can two walk together except they be agreed Ephesians 5.11, similar statement, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. And then 2 Corinthians 6.14, and this one's a lot of times used for family relationships or husband-wife or boyfriend-girlfriend dating, all of this. And we're all real familiar with this one. It says, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Many churches and religious groups are affiliated or in some way associated with the World Council of Churches, National Council of Churches, other interfaith groups, or, and some local, city, statewide unity groups. Ephesians 4.4 4, The Bible tells us there are seven unities to be kept. There is one body, and that is the New Testament church. One spirit. This is the Holy Spirit. Thessalonians 4.8, and he's also referred to uh, in John 16, 13, and 1 John 4, 6, as the spirit of truth. And the thing we need to realize with this is that spirit of truth will never, he will never mix truth and error. So if we, when you see that, realize that that's not, that's not God moving when you see truth and error joined together. One hope. 
we know that that hope in Titus 2.13 is the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. One Lord. Ephesians 4.5. Philippians 2.11 tells us that that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has got to be the head of the church. It cannot be a man. There are other organizations, there are other churches that feel like they have the ability to forgive sins and to direct lives. But that's not the way that it's supposed to be. It's not up to man. It's not in man's realm to forgive sins. It's got to be Jesus Christ. And then there's one faith. Jude 3 tells us that this faith was once delivered unto the saints. It is the complete body of doctrine taught in the Word of God. It's not something based on somebody's dream. It's not something based on someone's thoughts on what God meant to say. It's based on the Word of God. You've got to have something to go back to anchor to. I think Brother Lynn mentioned it the other day and was talking about a, a guy with the asking about how I can save my boat during a hurricane. He said, well, what you got to do is you got to take four anchors and you got to put them out off of each corner of the ship and then pray that that anchor holds. I'm so glad that I've got my anchor set in Jesus Christ and that that rock will never move. I don't need somebody to tell me what else to do. I don't need somebody to, to try to persuade me that this is the way, that this is what the Bible says or this is what, this is what God meant. I don't need that. I've got the Holy Spirit dwelling in me that tells me this is what I meant. Who tells me, John, you're going the wrong way, turn around. Or tells me, hey, we talked about this before, you better get back where you belong. Now, I'd, I'm sure nobody else has had that conversation with God. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know why it is that we can't just say, got it, Lord, and there we go. I guess it's that not really nice concept that God gave us, allows us to be free moral agents, gives us the right to choose so that we don't become living 
Christian zombies, you know, walking in lockstep. That's not the unity that God's looking for. He's not looking for Christians that the guys show up and they're wearing a black suit and a white shirt and a black tie or, or everybody's dressed alike and, and everybody's hair's done the same way and nobody has facial hair or they do have facial hair or whatever. There's not a prerequisite on how we are supposed to look other than we are to bring on and glory to our Lord and Savior. we would all look really interesting because the Bible talks about the Christian people and the church as a body of believers. They compare it to a physical body. And we've heard this before, I'm probably more times than not. Wouldn't it look odd if our nose looked like our ear? or our hand was attached to the side, our two hands were attached to the side of our head. God doesn't expect us to all be identical. He doesn't expect us to like the same things. He doesn't expect us to listen to the same things. He doesn't expect us to watch the same things or read the same things or dress the same way or drive the same car. What he does expect and what he does desire is for us to single-mindedly and in unity follow his leadership. To be found faithful. To be found serving. Whatever your position is. The Bible tells us where is that? There's another uh, Okay, where did it go? Ephesians 4:11 and 12. The Lord gives to the church as apostles and prophets which those two ministries essentially ended when the word of God was completed. And then he gives it, now we have evangelists, pastors, and teachers. God wants the members of his church to exercise the attitudes and the attributes mentioned in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2 and 32. We are to walk in lowliness, long-suffering, kindness, forgiveness, meekness. Supposed to show love. Supposed to be tender-hearted. And we're supposed to be forbearing. We need to be there for each other. The goal of our church should be to have every member working together 
in harmony. Doing what God has called you to do. Spurgeon once said that unity at the expense of truth is treason. And Dr. Chriswell said that ecumenicity is another name for death to the Baptist faith. As a church, as a people, it should be our desire to be found faithful doing what God's called us to do, adhering to the full and the whole complete, total counsel of God. We're going to see a lot of challenges in the, in the upcoming future. We're going to need each other. My prayer is that when the Lord comes back, when he calls us, that we'll all still be here. And that we'll all be faithful doing what he's asked us to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the day you've given us. And Lord, we just ask that you would guide and direct in our lives. And Father, that you would watch over us. God, we pray that as we go into this new year that Lord you might strengthen us Lord help us to get our eyes on you and to as the Bible says look unto Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith strengthen us Lord and help us to be found faithful Father help us to be faithful in praying for each other to Lord, maybe this year be able to maybe reach out to each other a little more often just to say, hey, I love you, praying for you, anything we can do for you. Father, just things that will strengthen the unity of our fellowship. Be with our pastor, Miss Sue, brother, Miss Reed, others who are not able to be with us here this morning. Pray that you would encourage them and lift them up. Restore their health, and Father, may they very soon be back with us. In Christ's name I pray, amen.